0: Hello, everybody. I'm Matt Zoller-Seitz, and this is a special edition of the Vulture TV podcast. It's no secret that Damon Lindelof and Tom Parada's HBO series The Leftovers, which is ending its run this year, is one of my favorite dramas. I've put it on my top ten list and written at some length about particular episodes and character arcs. I was not surprised to learn that Lindelof read my writing. You would sort of expect that but I was surprised to learn that it had affected the show itself. In a previous conversation on the Vulture TV podcast, he had credited a piece I wrote at the end of season two with inspiring HBO to give The Leftovers one more season. He also told me that episode five of the series was a response to my criticism and that beyond that, certain aspects of it were drawn from my life or what he imagined my life to be. Particularly in the years that followed my wife Jennifer's 2006 death from a previously undiagnosed heart problem. When I saw the episode, I had a complicated reaction. I was moved, maybe flattered in some vague way, but also confused and maybe a bit dumbfounded. Frankly, I had just never had anything like this happen to me before. So I reached out to Damon Lindelof, and here he is. Well, thanks for coming on the show, Damon.
1: It is always a, It is always a pleasure, Matt,
0: so you told me i don 't know maybe I should just let you explain it we We were talking about the show and uh, via email, and you told me that this sh- this particular episode had uh, some kind of something to do with me, and maybe maybe you should just tell it
1: We spoke the last time about how you wrote a piece after the second season had finished airing that was c- kind of a, a point counterpoint to a piece that Margaret Lyons had written. Uh, her piece was like, "I'm end the show. Enough leftovers. Loved season two, but you know I'm good right here." And then you wrote a piece that probably the site put up three or four days later, saying there should be another season of the leftovers, and you made a very compelling argument as to why. And then that very day, I think maybe two hours later after your piece went up, the show got uh, got picked up for a third season. And I got a call from Michael Lombardo and I was very tempted to say to Mike, did you read the vulture piece? (laughs) Um, But I was just so grateful that he that he had picked us up that I didn't want to push my luck. And, you know, we'll get back. We'll we'll get to this later. In addition to that, you had also written a piece about episode five of season two, the the Matt Jameson episode, where he uh, no uh, no room at the inn, where he is desperately trying to get back into Miracle when he is beaten up by the side of the road and his his wristband gets taken, and he needs to get he's just found out that his wife. Mary is pregnant, and he believes that if he can get her back into a miracle, that will protect the life of the, the child inside her, and perhaps it will wake her up from her coma because that's something that happened when the child was conceived. And, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, because memory is all subjective, but you know i I remember you really deeply connecting to that piece and maybe even saying it was your favorite of the season, or it was or something like that
0: In, you know I make a list of the best individual episodes, and that was my number one for that for that year
1: If we've done our jobs correctly there there will be an an impassioned argument amongst the audience about what the best episode was and and what someone picks as their favorite episode or the best episode will re- will reveal some subjective truth about that individual. Hmm, that's um, interesting. You know, and,
0: and, and I would say true.
1: I, I would hope so. And, and obviously I think when international assassin aired, there was like sort of just massive consensus that, Oh my God, that's my favorite episode and so you could draw all sorts of conclusions about that, but I think that even after you'd seen International Assassin, you doubled down and you were still like, okay, International Assassin's great, but, or, or good, or, or I don't even know if you wrote about it, but you were still sticking to your guns on, on episode five. So coming into the third season of the show, we obviously knew that we were going to do another Matt Jameson episode that was going to happen sometime in the middle of the season, episode four or five. We didn't know which one it was until we kind of started, you know, plotting things out, et cetera. But I definitely had it in my head that you were connected to that character. And I was like, I have to kind of do Matt Zeitz proud on this, this Matt episode. I can't set the bar at, it's gotta be better than the last one. But at least, at the very least, it has to demonstrate new colors, uh, for Matt Jameson. It, it's gonna hit the same kind of thematic, you know, drum beat, but there have to be a couple new instruments mixed in there. And at the same time, I'm not writing it solely for you, but I had it in the back of my head. And then I think you wrote a piece about Jen, your wife, in like, the spring, April or May of last, of 16?
0: It was. That was the uh, the 10th anniversary of her death, actually, April 27th of last year.
1: Okay. And you and I have never had a conversation about, about your loss, so...
0: No, um, not until want, this very you know, moment, actually.
1: First off, I want to say my deepest condolences, and I, you know, as, as someone who has been you know, incredibly happily married with the woman that I'm going to spend the rest of my life with. I I can't even put into words what, what that, how devastating that loss would be. And the fact that you've put, you put into, you write about her, you know, and particularly that piece, which I think may be the first time that I've, Learned that you had suffered that loss, but again, I'm, I'm not entirely sure. And there are things that that jump out that I remember very specifically from that piece. One was that you like you you kind of went on a bender, and you woke up in a you know you regained consciousness in like in a hotel with no yeah. memory of how you got there, and and that sort of connected to, you know, the way that we use hotels on the show with a, a great degree of specificity as these places that, that don't have character but feel like kind of intermediary pur- purgatorial spaces. The other thing also relating to hotels that I remember about that piece is that you were reflecting on some memory that you had with Jen where you guys had gotten in a massive fight and you were walking back to your hotel room and there was a fork sitting in, in the middle of the hallway.
0: That was actually, um, an, ex- that was actually an ex-girlfriend. That was actually oh, that was uh, that, yeah, that was next okay, girlfriend. See, but that was memories all subjective. No, but that Wait, was, was in it? but that was in a uh, that was in a section of it about uh, the idea, which I've repeated to the point where people are probably bored of hearing it. But I always get my back up when I hear a complaint of a movie or a television show or a novel or anything else. That dialogue was too on the nose. That symbolism was yes. too on the nose, and so forth. It's like yes. dreams are on the nose, and life is right. on the nose. And that was right. just one example of that. Like you know, here we were about to break up. It was pretty clear to us that we were going to break up that night. <laughs> yeah. And as we were returning... <laughs>
1: Put a fork in it.
0: <laughs> exactly. Well, that too, yeah. but also the, for, the idea yeah. of a fork in the road.
1: Oh, oh There was okay. literally a fork See? in the road there, there on the way go. to the hood. Two, two different ways. Well, still, go. but
0: it was like a symbolically resonant image, so much so that my, my soon to be girlfriend who also was a writer, took a picture of it.
1: Of the fork. She
0: took a picture of the fork. She, she started laughing. She just started laughing. She said, I have to get a picture of this. And did you pick it up? Oh God, no, neither of us did. We just left it there.
1: We just left it there.
0: We left it there. I I I I it never even occurred to me to pick the fork up.
1: And and here's what's amazing <laughs> to me about the story, or at least what occurred to me when I when I read it, was like somebody put their room service tray out in the hallway and room service came and picked it up and the fork fell off. You know? Right. That's the that's the story, and now sudden. But this fork now has meaning, you know. Like, <laughs> yes, it does. Isn't, isn't that isn't that just religion writ large? Like, isn't that the the whole ball of wax right there? Like something completely and totally devoid of meaning can suddenly have meaning if you put it in the proper context. And so that that jumped out at me too. And so. I had you on the brain, right? You know, right, right around the time that we were starting to talk about episode five, which we decided to title "It's a Matt 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 World," for you know because we wanted it to have that kind of 1960s kind of caper energy. And we chose a lot of we made musical choices, you know, as songs that related to the '60s. This crazy movie, Frasier the Sensuous Lion, that was released, I think, in in the in the, either the late '60s or the early '70s, et cetera. And then, but you know, I just kind of had you on the brain. So it, it's not like I wrote it for you. That's too weird. There, there are certain things that we've done for very specific critics. Famousl,y Andy Greenwald. You know, we designed the entire opening of the second season, the Cave Woman opening, just to piss him off, and we're successful in doing so. Um,
0: <laughs> that's even that's that, that's even higher praise, I think.
1: <laughs> you probably shouldn't, you know, pick specific you know, critics like that. But I always think of the movie The Natural and the relationship between uh, uh, Robert Redford and, uh, and Duval in that movie. Um, yes, It's the relationship that I have with some critics where, at least in the script that I'm writing in my head, there's a tremendous amount of mutual admiration, but there's also a tremendous amount of danger. Because mm-hmm. if, you, if you stop hitting the ball, if you start slumping, they'll be your fiercest, you know, they'll turn on you, you know, lickety split. And so it's a very dangerous dance. There are certain pieces of critical writing that have just impacted me hugely. You've done some of it. Sepp has done some of it. There's a writer, uh, Emily Nussbaum, has had tremendous effect on me emotionally. There's a writer, Heather Haverleski, who wrote a piece about the lost finale that I was dangerously obsessed with for almost a year.
0: I have to say that I felt understood by this show in a very deep way, and that's one of the reasons why I like it so much. Does it mean that I may, in fact, inflate its quality for personal reasons? Who the hell knows, but I don't really care, you know? Like, And I, and I almost feel like it's, it's, uh, it's very rare that you find a TV show that speaks to your specific circumstance, even though nothing that's happening on this show per se has anything really to do with anything that I have experienced or probably will experience. You know, And I'm not just talking about the departure. I mean, like, the family configurations, the traveling, where they live, how they live, all that stuff. Like, I don't have any tangible connection to any of that. I just know that there's something about the feeling of the show that returns me to that place that I was in in the months and years immediately following my wife's death. And I like it. And I'm not saying I like to wallow at it. I'm saying I like it that there is this machine... You know, Roger Ebert talked about movies as a machine that generates empathy. I think, th- I think they can also generate other emotions. But I like the idea of this show being this machine or this chamber that I can enter once a week and it will return me to sort of the emotional or mental space that I was in. And I don't have to approximate it. It's actually how I felt. Like there's something about the way it's shot, the use of music, the, 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 the particular distance of the close-ups. That, that just is like the Proustian Madeline.
1: I'm, I'm, smart, I'm smart enough to understand 83% of the things that you just said. <laughs> um, you know, and I'll just, I'm just nodding my head about the other ones, and I will Google Proustian uh, Madeline, which is also, the, ironically, strangely, the name of my college band. But I, I, uh, it was actually the petting zoo. Uh, not, not, as, not as cool. Mine was, but,
0: uh, mine yeah. was Snake Farm.
1: Are you serious?
0: No, that was just my fantasy oh. band name.
1: And my but the name of my real college band was Petting Zoo and yours was your your fantasy was Snake Farm. Snake I mean Snake Farm, yes. Snake Farm and Petting Zoo, not too far afield.
0: What is a Snake Farm but a petting zoo that you don't want to bring your kids to?
1: Yeah, it's it's a it's a, a, a as opposed to a petting zoo which I also don't want to bring my kids to. <laughs> um, but uh I I hear everything that you're saying and obviously it's It's no secret that the leftovers is it's not a meditation on grief, but it is a show about different coping mechanisms that people employ for unexplicable loss and the closest analog that we have in the in the real world is is death and 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 I do think that the you know that if I'm dedicating the show to you, or I'm, I'm writing to someone who's kind of suffered that sort of loss, it is a very universal idea. And I do think that it's not like you have to have lost someone that you care deeply about in order to understand the leftovers. But I feel like once you once you get to the, you know, once you hit 40, you're odds are you've lost someone that's really close to you. That's unfortunately the world that we live to live in. It is it is more abnormal when you've lost someone close to you who is your age or your peer. That's not supposed to happen. That's There's an unnatural quality to that. And it's shocking and it's, and it's sudden as it was in, in your case versus a long sort of protracted battle with, with illness. I, I experienced, in, you know, in 2002... When I was, um, in my late twenties, I was either 27 or 28. I was just working on a TV show and I was working on the show called Crossing Jordan and I was just in the writer's room. We were breaking an episode and the, the office PA came in and said, there's a phone call for you, Damon. And they called like the main line, which was really weird. And I just felt something in my body like, Uh, went on alert. And I answered the phone and it was my, I was in LA at the time. It was my dad's cleaning lady who had found him collapsed on his bathroom floor. And she called the ambulance and she said, you need to come, you should come to New Jersey. And in, in the space of 30 seconds, my entire life had changed. And I, and I would never speak to my father again. I got there. It was a week of very unpleasant medical decisions, but he was not conscious. And then he died and so there there is there are just no words to describe the the feeling the shift the radical shift in the lifting of the veil of illusion uh that we're all safe and that and everything's going to be okay when something like that happens and when i read tom's book the departure was a big grandiose supernatural slash sci-fi mythological idea that completely and totally tapped that feeling in a way that I'd never seen on the page before. And I was like, I'm fucking, I'm sticking a faucet in that tree and I'm getting that sap out. Like, that's what I want to write about. The, the last four years have been an exploration of that feeling. And then what you do next, <laughs> which uh, is a work in progress, I think, for all of us. I guess my question, what I'm most curious, just talking to you is, why Matt. You know, are you a religious guy? Like, what is it about him that you connect to? Holy
0: shit! Let me think about that. Because he hasn't
1: lost. He hasn't <laughs> lost anyone. In fact, he got his wife back.
0: Well, he got his wife back, but he not really. I mean, you know, right? He's, he's he, he got she, her back and uh, then he lost her. And and I, but, but, I would yeah. say, well, it's the okay. Here's all right. I'll play Timothy Hutton to your Judd Hirsch for a second here.
1: Oh, boy. It was... that That's a, so much better than, than than playing Matt Damon to my Robin Williams. Because <laughs> we are not going to hug at the end of that. That's way inappropriate. We're also miles away.
0: So so, so uh, there was... I'll tell you one of the reasons why I responded so strongly to that Matt Jameis episode in season two, No Room at the End, is because it reminded me of two things, neither of which you could know about, Because, you know, I don't believe we'd even actually spoken at that time. And I don't think very many people know this who are even close to me. That is, um, my wife's father-in-law has, since 1983, been caring for my mother-in-law who had a stroke. And she's paralyzed, mostly paralyzed on half of her body, and she's in a wheelchair. Wow. And he is a dutiful, kind gracious man with the patience of a saint. I mean it's unbelievable. And and that entire that entire relationship reminded me of them. Reminded me of my late wife, my, I should say my first wife's uh parents and oddly my uh or not oddly my I you know I got married again in February and my uh my wife is Yeah that's and she's my late first wife's sister. So uh Really? Her only sister, yes. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's so, incredible. yeah. So anyway, my father, I'll just call him my father-in-law and mother-in-law yeah. then. So anyway, you've got a, uh, a man who can walk, who is entrusted with the care of a woman who can't and who has, a you know, my mother-in-law doesn't have really any speech impairments to speak of. But like I could project myself into that. And I felt like I was seeing right. a window into their world, that daily ritual of things that have to get done no matter what and sure. the person who does it is the spouse so that was one thing and the other thing was yep. about a week before my wife died we were on the subway with my daughter who at the time was about 8 and my son who was 2 and uh i had a bunch of like backyard stuff for some reason and i was carrying it up the steps and my wife was carrying had the stroller with our son in it and she got up the steps ahead of me because I was carrying all of these. I think they were lawn chairs for some cockamamie reason. And um, I remember watching her walk ahead of me when she got up to the street with that stroller. And I noticed that she favored her left leg in a way that reminded me of the way that her mother favored one side of her body. And I thought, is she going to have a stroke too? Wow. And is my life going to be like her father's life with her mother? And if so, What's that going to feel like? Am I going to have the patience for it? Am I going to have the fortitude for it? And I remember very clearly thinking, well, she's my wife. I'll deal with it. It'll be fine. Right. And then very shortly after that, she di- she just died. Huh. Yeah, so so that that's one of the reasons why the Matt Jamison stuff hit me so particularly hard. But there's also another yeah. thing, which is that you have on this show a number of people who are trying to narrativize what happened to them. And uh, you know they're looking for meaning, they're looking for a reason, they're looking for a story, they're trying to uncover what they believe is a hidden narrative behind this unbelievably senseless thing that happened to them and indeed to everyone on the earth at the same time. Right. Right. And 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 what the conceit of Tom Parada's novel does which is so ingenious is one of the problems that you often have in grief and mourning is you're going through a loss, but other people around you may not be. And so they don't have that ability to grieve with you in exactly the way that you're grieving because they aren't in that zone. But then like a month or now from now or a year from now, there might be, they might be, but you'll be out of it. So we're always out For of sure. sync right? as we grieve, you know, as a species, we're always out of sync. We're always different. We're always different kind of proximities from death, right?
1: Right. And it's also, it's not a universal idea. I mean, you know, we you people use the word grieve like they use the word love. So if you say I love you to someone and they say I love you too, your brain says they're just sending, they're just reciprocating the exact same emotional thing that I just sent their way. But it's not like the color blue where it's an empirical thing. It's an emotion. And so, you know, if you're grieving and someone says to you, hey, I lost my so-and-so five years ago, it gets better. You want to cut their head off. <laughs>
0: exactly. Exactly. Or it's part of God's plan or some some shit Correct. like that.
1: But then five years later, you're saying to someone who just lost someone, it gets better. Like, we're all we're all stuck in that pattern because we do, you know, we you, you do empathize and you do want to, you know, you do want to help them build whatever that narrative is that you describe.
0: And they and so this novel creates a scenario where in every single person on the earth has some connection to this loss that happened at exactly the same instant right right so that so so it kind of puts everybody on the same page with regard to that but then once they get beyond that everybody's responding to it in their own way but a lot of them are trying to narrativeize it you know the guilty remnants are trying to narrativeize it matt jameson starts out trying to narrativeize it in the first season in his own way when he's he's letting people know what the sins of some of the departed were
1: right yeah just to, i well he just wants to clear up the mis the the, the the misapprehension that uh, that only good people were taken. Right. So he just wants to make it clear this is not the rapture people. Like because a lot of assholes uh, disappeared, and 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 the subtext there is, and I'm still here.
0: And I'm still if here. I'm,
1: <laughs> yeah, if I'm still here. There, there it, it wasn't a rapture.
0: Right, exactly, you know, exactly. Yeah. So you've got so you've got the Guilty Remnants offering one narrative and Matt Jamison offering a counter narrative. And then you've got, Correct. you know, you've got people who are, you know, they move to Jordan because that's, you know, that that town has its own particular narrative, which is, you know, supposedly apart from the rapture. And then you've got, you know, I mean, I could go on and on. It's your show. I'm not telling you anything you don't know. <laughs> but then, like, towering above all of them, in my opinion, is Matt. Right. Because Matt has actually gone to the trouble of writing a gospel to explain this inexplicable thing that happened to Kevin. That For can sure. that can't even be rationally verified and he has constructed a new I call it the new and improved testament. Yes. You know? He, yeah. And this is a guy who and this is another thing that that resonated with me is obsessed with the uh, with the anniversary. You know, the 7th anniversary, the 7th anniversary, not the 5th, not the 10th. That's interesting. Right and it reminded me of something that I have written about in that very piece that you describe, which is this feeling that when the first anniversary of Jen's death rolled around, I had to be sitting in the chair where she was when she died because I thought that I would feel her spirit, mm. that I thought I would somehow and, and, experience and it, and nothing happened right right and the entire time I was sitting in the room with the door closed, uh the bedroom slash you know workspace that where we shared a oh, life is together. The,
1: is this the bare necessities?
0: This part? is yeah and and I heard yeah, my children kept saying dad break. come out here we're doing karaoke dad come out here and I was like god damn it I'm trying to grieve in yeah. here. And then finally I went right. outside and sang the bare necessities with my children and it yeah. turns out uh-huh. that's that's probably how I should have been honoring her anyway. But but right. this idea that you have to feel a particular way on the anniversary of your loved one's death or on Christmas or on, you know, Easter Sunday or whatever, you know, Hanukkah, um, you know, Ramadan, whatever, is pernicious and false, and it makes people feel guilty for not feeling a particular way, and I just feel Matt doing that, and I feel him doing it over and over and trying to force other people to do it, and then we get to his meeting with God in this episode. Holy shit. I,
1: I will say, though, The Bare the bear Necessities is kind of the perfect, you know, is the perfect fork aren't the, aren't the lyrics of, of the bare necessities about forgetting about your worries and your strife, et cetera, et cetera. Like it is kind of a, you know, like if you're looking through the Matt Jameson prism, which is, you know, you're sitting in a chair looking for some sort of spiritual connection, you know, some, something maybe even supernatural. And then that's what, that's what comes your way through Matt Jameson would basically be like that, you know, that's, that was God. Right. That's the word that he would use. He's the most overtly re- religious character in the show. Hmm. And in Prada's in book, Matt Jameson, when the departure happens, he just completely and totally loses his faith, you know, because he's he just he just he defrocks himself. And to me, I was like, is it more interesting if, he, if this is the guy who just keeps doubling down? Um, hmm. Like that, that that would be more interesting. Like how, what menu, what things would he have to move around in his in his story in order to believe that this was all still a part of God's plan? And then that's when all the Job stuff kind of started coming in, you know. God and this angel Hasatan, which I think is the nomenclature that origin that finally. You know, became Satan, but this is in the Old Testament. They get into a, a discussion, and Hasatan is basically like, you know, all these people who worship you and love you. If if you just if if you just shat all over them, if you punish them mercilessly, they would forsake you. You know, and God's like, I, I disagree. And you know, and and says, all right, let's pick someone and see what happens. And they pick Job. And Job is uh, hes a happily married guy, and he's got kids, and he's wealthy, and he has land and cows and all this stuff. And God just kind of, uh, you know, one by one strips all these things away from him. He kills Job's wife, he kills his kids, strikes his uh, cattle with famine, and then just... You know, just to be a real dick covers Job and boils and makes Job sick. And all of Job's friends kind of start showing up to Job and saying, you know, what what are you, 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 you know, you're going to take this? Either there is no God or you've got to kind of forsake God's name. you got to, why do you still believe in this guy and why do you still care about this guy? Even Job's wife, who is never actually named and we we hit this little nugget of information when Matt talks to Sandy in the season 2 episode brilliantly played by Blair Butler her one line in job is essentially you know uh, you know forsake this guy and job refuses to and so he never wavers and then uh, job basically culminates in this epic sort of showdown between God and Job, where you would expect that Job would say, explain yourself, you know, why did you, why did you do this to me? And instead, it re- it got, God just monologues for pages and pages and pages about how fucking awesome he is and how he can do whatever he wants. <laughs> right. And he doesn't owe anybody any explanations. And then he goes back to wherever God goes and snaps his fingers and everything is restored to job the wife back Kids back, land back, and you know, end of story. Draw your own conclusions. The Talmudic scholars in Judaism go nuts about Job. I mean, you know, what does it mean? What are you know? What what's the kind of takeaway from this? But it just felt like it was Matt Jameson to a T. And so we were like, in season three, Matt Jameson is going to have that conversation with God, and God's attitude is going to be, "Go fuck yourself, I'm God." But how do we do that in in leftovers language? That was the jumping off point.
0: It's interesting that you've got you've got Matt you know, you've got basically in this show, you've got your own version of Job, but he's a Job who wants God, he wants to question God and force him to justify himself.
1: Correct. In the previous two seasons, his entire construct, yes, he's a man of God. Yes, he's a religious man, but it was always anchored by Mary. You know, it was always, you know, we we always felt empathy for him when we watched him care for Mary. The, The season two episode is all about, I need to, I need to take care of Mary. I I need to get Mary back into Miracle. I love Mary. And then when we started talking about the third season, we're like, what if now that Mary is back, things aren't, you know, we begin to realize that, that Matt really only cares about himself. It's not that he doesn't love Mary, but now that he basically got his wish granted, that's not enough. And what happens if Matt gets sick again? What if Matt's cancer returns? You know, how would he feel about that? Would he feel like, well, you know what? I've led a good life, and this is God's plan. Or would he be really angry about it and demand that God explain why he has given Matt cancer? Because the first time that we meet Matt Jameson in any real way is at the beginning of the third episode of the first season. He's giving a sermon about how he was jealous of the fact that his parents had uh, a baby sister, and he he prayed to God to make her go away. That's Nora. And then he and then he was diagnosed with leukemia. And he viewed that as punishment from God for being so selfish. So these were all the ideas that were kind of swirling around as we began to talk about in the final chapter for Matt Jameson. And obviously, we will see him again after episode five. But I'm comfortable saying this is the last pure Matt episode. What what's your religious prism? Was there any religious construct in your life that you know, that like made you that either gave you comfort or made you rebel against it?
0: I did have a sense of, you know, I went to church. I went to Sunday school every Sunday up until when I was a a teenager and I stared at the picture of Christ on the wall and I read the scripture and, you know, I'm more conversant in the Bible than probably a lot of secular, basically Americans of my generation. But I never I, I was always I always described myself as agnostic. But I will say that when Jen died. I uh, decided I was an atheist. I decided I was an atheist because I decided that, and it was partly a reaction to being told by friends, some of whom were religious and some of whom were merely repeating the bromides that you're expected to repeat in situations like this, that this was part of a plan, that it was God's will, that there was a reason why this happened. And my thinking was, well, if there was a reason why this happened, then God is an idiot. <laughs> He's an idiot. Like he did the math wrong. Right. He needed to go back and check the math. Like, and, I, and I actually described it to my uh, father-in-law one time as when we were waiting on the coroner's report to figure out what killed her and it was a prolapse mitral valve. I said, I feel like this was a cosmic accounting error. You know, or like something like when the space shuttle blew up in 1986 and they found out it was because of a single defective O-ring. Right. You know, it's like, this is like, how could something like this happen? And like, if this is part of the plan, then, you know... God is, to quote uh, Al Pacino as Satan and the devil's advocate, an absentee landlord. I mean, like the the lights are on, but nobody's home. (laughs) So I was very angry. I was very angry about that. So that's my my religious prison was fuck you, God. If there is if there is a God and if you exist, then fuck you. That was my attitude. And I did really enjoy that sequence like. I didn't uh, you know, I was watching this episode and I'm, I know how artists minds work, you know, I mean, I'm I'm a I'm a fiction writer and filmmaker myself. So I wasn't watching this thinking, oh, you know, Damon Lindelof and Tom Parada think I take a boat and, you know, where people have orgies and go to Australia or whatever. The part right. where where Matt Jameson basically ties God to a wheelchair and interrogates him. I thought, yeah, this is if this is not directly about me, it's definitely speaking to me. And uh, and I was thinking, well, like, what would I have asked? What would I have asked God? I, I am a much less I'm a considerably more thoughtful person, a considerably less self selfish, myopic person than I was when Jen was alive. But if I could turn the clock back and have her be here and be this less well-rounded individual and have her there, I used to say I would do it. But now I'm not so sure because I'm married to Nancy and I love Nancy and she's amazing. And I've known her just as long as I've known Jen and she's a different person, but she's equally fantastic. And like, you know, I don't have suicidal thoughts anymore. I, you know, I don't want to die anymore. I want to live. I don't look back all the time. I'm looking ahead, you know? So I think that part of my life is over and boy, this is way deeper than I thought it would get. (laughs)
1: No, I'm, I'm glad it went here. The reason that I asked you the religion question is, I don't know what this is based on, probably just narcissism, maybe based on, you know, some rudimentary sense of that. I, I, I assumed your last name could be Jewish, but I was like, oh, he's Jewish like me. That's another thing is like Jews are kind of fascinated by Matt Jameson as well. The show is really absent Judaism or any sort of Jewish voice on the show, other than the fact that I'm writing it and, and is very uncharacteristic of Hollywood. I think that I'm the only Jew who is a writer on The Leftovers over the course of three years. And so, you know, Parada, who I think identifies as a, an agnostic, if not an atheist, and I think he was raised Catholic. But I think that the show has a very Old Testament vibe to it, because the Old Testament God just offers no explanations, no. and there is no, there is no, you have to kind of figure it out for, your, for yourself. So I was like, I want a New Testament guy dealing with an Old Testament God, you know, that, that's why, that's why Job. But we were like, at the beginning of the scene, Matt doesn't even think this guy is God. He's, he's angry at the fact that the guy is claiming to be God, which is, you know, which is personally offensive to him. But by the end of the scene, he starts Asking him questions as if as if he is God because he needs somebody to answer these questions
0: he does and but i but I also feel like at that point he does think he is god and and I think him watching watching this formerly false god hurl a guy off of off of the ship and into the water might have triggered that that's just my theory about it because you know another thing that you guys do on this series is you are constantly. Just as Don Draper on Mad Men has this original trauma of his mother's death and it keeps sort of recurring again and again and again throughout the series in different guises, you have a version of that on the show, which is the rapture. You keep you keep sort of repeating the rapture over and over on a smaller scale in different ways. And some of them are obvious and some of them are coded. And, you know, the the, the incident at the quarry, I mean – you know all the miracles uh, in the course of the show and then in this episode alone you've got this god character <laughs> right. this former bronze medalist hurling a guy yeah. off of the off of the uh, deck of the ship into the water for no reason at all and and it's just like when he's told you know when he when uh, Matt demands that he fess up he says i asked abraham to kill isaac just to see if i would do it right you know i have in my notes from this episode uh, the phrase god is an asshole <laughs> You know, well, and that's an Old know. Testament God. That's an Old Testament God.
1: Fortunately, we are not believers, or else we would be struck down by lightning right now. And but but our God is an asshole and doesn't give a shit about the fact that we're we're throwing shade his way. <laughs> um, and and so be it you know my favorite thing about the episode at least me is there is a nuke has been detonated not you know not like in a in a major metropolitan area in fact in an unpopulated island in the south pacific but like a nuke has been detonated within 24 hours of the events of this episode happening and nobody gives a shit you know they <laughs> right. like it just doesn't you know it doesn't even come up in fact matt had a line when you know after they're trying to milk him to to put it in the least profane ways imaginable. He breaks free of his leash and he's basically like, uh, you know, he chastises the uh, the Israelites at the bottom of Mount Sinai, but he had a line saying, there's been a nuclear incident and nobody even cares. And we cut the line because he doesn't care. Like, you know, the nuclear incident is just basically something that was an inconvenience for him to get to Kevin. Like, he's like, oh, I guess now I have to talk this guy into renting a cargo plane. But nobody, you know, and, and so that idea of everybody becoming, you know, incredibly narcissistic, starting with David Burton, who may have died and come back to life, and, and it, it certainly has, is meant to have some sort of mythic significance for the audience because, you know, he's, he's played by the same actor who Kevin experienced, on on both the bridge uh, in International Assassin and then in the karaoke bar in the finale. And so you're kind of wondering, is this guy God? Because he's been presented in some supernatural context in the show. And then, you know, I think what happens to him at the end of this episode and, and Matt's response to watching that happen. It doesn't matter if that guy was God or not. What matters to us as storytellers is how does Matt Jameson feel about God slash David Burton now at the end of this episode? And what does that mean for him going forwards as he's separated from this this idea? Has he learned his lesson, etc.? You know, that was the equation we were working
0: on. I find it ironic and funny. That he's so angry at at David Burton for being this false god and and purveying this false narrative of him being God and essentially offering you know creating an, a, a, his own gospel around himself and stealing the story of Christ and this is the guy who's making these accusations basically stole the story of Christ and wrote it wrote an entire new New Testament
1: off sure of it. I mean, it's like it's like he's
0: angry. It's like he's angry at a rival storyteller who's who, who's telling basically the same story.
1: No correct, but it that that idea of jealousy is a recurring theme, certainly through the third season. Kevin senior articulates it in the third episode, which is like i I can get on board with this new gospel you're writing as long as it's as long as I'm in it more so if if there's a part of Matt that's doubting his own journey, of course. You know he takes personal offense at that because it takes the veracity of his own narrative away from him if God is basically taking the slope ferry to Tasmania and and handing out these obnoxious FAQ cards to anyone who approaches him and that's the other thing is he won't even grant Matt a word you know Matt comes up to him and says, "Are you telling people you're God?" and he just gets handed the card and <laughs> off. right I mean he just wants the guy to talk to him he's like that, Rupert pupkin is, he's
0: like R- Rupert Pupkin with uh with with uh, uh Jerry Lewis. with Jerry Lewis yeah. and King of Comedy. Just,
1: sorry, Jerry Jerry Langford. Jerry
0: Langford. Yes, let's get the name yeah. of the character correct.
1: Right. Who also, by the way, Jerry Langford also ends up getting tied up by Sandra Bernhardt, of course. Interesting. Uh, with, uh, that's something that we have to do with our gods on occasion—is them into chairs and you know, enforce them into some level of submission.
0: Well, and of course, the other thing I was going to mention about the Matt is, uh, you know, that that whole cut line that you referred to about the nuke. You know, opening of this episode, the nuke is another one of these miniature raptures. I mean, the the way you present it is like it's a miracle or a curse. It's like, you know, you have this way that you show these kind of uncanny, terrifying what the fuck is going on events on the show. And that is you you drop the sound out and it's just images and music and you do it again. You know, you have some like very faint sound effects, but not too many. And, uh, right. and also, th- there's this whole idea that, you know, nuclear weapons are specifically set up so that two people have to turn the keys. And this guy has pulled a Jean-Claude Van Damme and Time Cop, <clears throat> and he's figured out a way to get around that, which is another thing nobody could have foreseen.
1: Congratulations for making a Jean-Claude Van Damme Time Cop reference in the in the body of a leftovers conversation. <laughs> I think that you just, I think you win the cupie doll for that
0: one. Well, I'm just impressed by his limberness. Um, yes. But uh, but you know you got a big boom rapture in there like this 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 catastrophe that comes out of nowhere and like uh, like uh, and it's another example of other people's grief like it's you know to our characters it's an inconvenience that's presenting that's preventing them from getting to point eight uh, from point A to point B um, right. but it's also just this endless revisitation of a particular scenario which is the which started this whole mess which is the rapture. You know, there's another dimension to this, which is, you know, not central to it, but intriguing, which is this idea of the of the sto- of the of the storyteller or the showrunner as God. And uh, oh God, that's and
1: terrifying. We're more like I have to say, we're more like Greco-Roman gods though, versus monotheistic gods, um, because. Like it's like in Clash of the Titans where like Zeus and Hera and Athena and, you know, uh, Hermes are all like duking it out and arguing with one another. Um, That that feels like it's more similar to the way that our writers
0: (laughs) are. Some of those older older movies from the 50s and 60s, they'd represent it by having like Poseidon is stirring what looks like a giant pot of jambalaya with a trident or something. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Absolutely. That's what that's what the trident is for. Jambalaya stirring. (laughs) But he's certainly not for spearing fish.
0: God forbid. Uh, But you've got uh, you've got Matt saying, uh, you know, you know how it ends. And he says, why would you say that? And he says, because, you know, everything. And the look on Burton's face is very curious, and it's really what it's really quite a remarkable performance in the way that you do, you Bill can't Trump is an amazing actor. You yeah. can't you can't be entirely sure if he does know everything or if he is just making Matt think that he does, or if he's just there's something yet a third thing happening on his face, like it's kind of plausible deniability all the way around. But you know, I keep coming back to this him saying, "I asked Abraham to kill Isaac just to see if he'd do it." And, 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 and then him saying, you know, why did you throw that guy off the boat? And he says, because I could. And Matt, right. sa- and Matt says to him, admit what you did. And, he, and, and he, he just, he won't take responsibility for anything. If anything, right. he sort of owns his arbitrariness, which me- makes him, you know, to connect to something you were talking about earlier, an Old Testament God.
1: Correct. An Old Testament God who has the same level of disdain for the New Testament that we would suspect, particularly when Matt starts talking about Jesus, and I think that is deeply offensive to Matt that he he's he's accusing David Burton of appropriation, and uh, and David Burton is essentially saying Jesus Christ didn't even rise from the dead; he had an identical twin brother, thus the confusion. <laughs> um, and, right. You know, Matt has the same reaction that you just did, which is he laughs out loud at the absurdity of it. So I think chronologically, Matthew doesn't have... The, it It doesn't have Christ's birth or the resurrection in it. So no. it doesn't... And, and it's sort of like, okay, this is good. We're onto something here, but we need something else. And it's like, okay, so we're going to do the nativity and we're going to do the resurrection. That's the second draft. And those two ideas that's like that cracked the story wide open because without those two <laughs> ideas you know without those two ideas i don't think christianity catches on
0: one of one um, of the one of the fa- one of the fascinating texts that i've read about the about the the new testament is uh, paul verhoeven of all people wrote a wonderful book about uh about Jesus he goes through all of the books of the New Testament and he compares the different versions of different uh, different stories and he he talks about what was added and what was taken away and also what the possible motivations might have been for these changes being made and and it's really interesting because it almost feels to me like as a film and television scholar I feel like I'm li- I'm reading about multiple accounts of a movie that keeps getting revised
1: I worked with Ridley Scott for an entire year and I was like and always in my mind I was like I just want to ask him Blade Runner what's the version what's the what's the true version and because if anyone would know that he would he would know but then I a I never asked him because I didn't want to know and then b is that true you know like if Ridley and Harrison Ford disagree on what they want their version of, of, of Blade Runner to be, because Harrison Ford made acting choices based on Decker either being a replicant or not being a replicant, and Ridley had something else in mind, you know, th- those are two different artists basically interpreting the same text in two different ways. And then, so the meta point becomes, all versions are in play, and, you know, and your sub- and, and the subjectivity of the audience basically transcends the filmmaker's intent. That's, you know... Now what happens in 800,000 years when aliens basically discover, you know, a DVD of Blade Runner, but they did, but it's not the one of the director's <laughs> cut, you know, uh, like, do they get it wrong? Um, they're and they're so they're pissed.
0: Is, they're pissed. The aliens are pissed. Like, this isn't the director's right. cut. They throw it yeah. out the window of the spaceship.
1: The one thing they can agree upon is that Rucker Howard's final speech was awesome.
0: <laughs> okay. So one last, one last thing. I I think if we go with this metaphor and and this god figure sitting in the wheelchair <clears throat> is the artist, is the storyteller. Um,
1: this isn't going to end well for me. Well,
0: it, no, I'm going to say <laughs> yeah. I I you know I'm going to say like I'm not saying you know you'd throw you've thrown a dude off a boat or anything, but I think I I look at Burton and I see a guy who's just making it up as he goes along and he's and he's just doing whatever feels right in the moment, and you know maybe there's a bit of narrative cruelty to the guy, but I don't see, you know, I, I see him like, I don't see him having a plan. I don't see him having a plan in the way that like a critic often wants an artist to have a plan. Are you comfortable with this idea that you are just feeling your way through this also? Like, is that insulting to say
1: that? It's not, you know, it's not insulting because it's true, but because of what happened with Lost and because that idea is, t- there's so much negativity and uncertainty about my storytelling attached to the making it up as he goes along idea, where let's, you know, let's unpack that for just one sec. Vince Gilligan says, I'm just making it up as I go along. That's my bad, Vince Gilligan. You know? (laughs) And, and, and nobody. I like that you make him sound like Val
0: Kilmer in Tombstone.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow. Uh, that, that's, that's the highest compliment that can possibly be paid. Um, uh, Doc Holliday. And, And, but, I worship Vince Gilligan, I've met Vince Gilligan, he's an incredible writer and an incredible human being and is completely and totally transparent about the idea that when Walter White opened up, you know, went in, had his had his birthday bacon, opens up the trunk and there's a rifle in there, that at the time they wrote that and in fact at the time that it aired, they had no idea how they were going to pay it off. And in fact that rifle was used in the final five minutes of the finale of the series. And nobody cares because he was transparent and authentic and open and honest about the fact that they, you know, they do it by feel. And it's not just because breaking bad isn't a mystery show and lost was it's he like literally set up the ending of the series and, and openly stated that he was, that they, that they were finding it by feel and nobody takes issue with that with me. I've got something to make up for, something to be redeemed for. That's the narrative that exists around me. That's not the narrative that I accept, but I have to be aware of that narrative. And so what I would say is, I'm not uh, insulted at all because it's the truth. Of course, we're making it up as we go along. But both things are true. And both things are true of David Burton slash God, which is there's an argument to be made for the fact that he has a plan and that he's a mythic character because we've set that up in the show. He's the guy on the bridge. He's the guy in the karaoke bar. How is it that Kevin Garvey has experienced this man with an Australian accent that now Matt Jameson meets on a ferry from Tasmania to Melbourne? Matt Jameson doesn't know that he's the same guy that, that Kevin Garvey uh, hung out with, but, but the audience does. So there's a case to be made for the fact that he is God. But then he's a troll, and he's full of shit, and he's an asshole, and he gets eaten by a lion. You know? <laughs> um, so, you know, so I would argue that both things are true. You know, It's possible to both be making things up as you go along and have a plan at the same time that may baffle people but it's just true because i just say look in the mirror and and say i'm i'm making things up as i go along and i have a plan and guess what you just told the truth because anybody who has a plan for their life and everything is going according to that plan please please let's have a chat i want to i want to know your secret like because that's just not life I mean, that's not the way that I see life. I, 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 it's, it's absurd to me. And I want my storytelling to reflect that absurdity. Hmm.
0: Well, that's, that's an ending if I ever heard one. Thank you. <laughs>
1: my pleasure.